I often think I've forgotten more than what most people have seen. I've just been so fortunate. You know, I hear some kids sprouting off how good a fisherman they are some days, and I've got to tell them, look, mate, I've lost more big gummies at the bow roller than you're ever likely to see. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Amidst the vast embrace of the ocean, where the horizon melds with the deep blues, there exists a life thoroughly entwined with the undulating rhythms of the sea. For some individuals, salt water flows through their lifeblood sustaining and challenging them in equal measure. As a commercial fisherman along the remote and wild west coast of South Australia, Jeff Schmucker's days unfurl with the pre-dawn glow that glosses the water's surface. His trusty boat knows the moods of the Southern Ocean intimately, slicing through the waves to reach fishing grounds. Here, the waters churn with life and the Australian bite offers its rich harvest. The sea demands a balance of respect taking enough to thrive, but always conscious of the necessity to conserve. With hands sculpted by the pull of nets and the fight of the line, he engages in a daily ballet with the forces of nature, a rhythm set by weather, water, and the elusive catch. It's a profession at the mercy of the elements, a dance with chance where every day holds the promise of providence or the risk of return with an empty fish tub. Yet it's not just the fisherman's line that casts deep into the heart of the ocean. As a big wave surfer, the same tumultuous waters become a stage for a different kind of pursuit. At the mercy of swells that have come vast distances, Jeff finds solace and exhilaration on the towering waves that crash with raw energy against the rugged west coast. To surf here is to take on the ocean's might, to ride the pulse of a planet in motion. For this fisherman and surfer, the sea is a source of livelihood and a canvas for courage, where each day spent on the west coast's wild waters is a testament to a life less ordinary, a life where water is the ever-flowing source of existence. And my name's Jeff Schmucker. I'm from uh, Streaky Bay on the Air Peninsula of South Australia. When I was born, I, I, I uh, have got this little phenomena and my second and third toe are joined halfway down and I always was born I was born with a set of flippers <laughs> I've been I've been on the water all my life from a kid mate just hanging out with the old man fishing I was taking days off school when I was seven and eight when I was only in year three and four to have a, a to fill in a trip with the old man on a, a shark trip on a gillnet boat on an old timber boat called the Carol J fishing out of Streaky Bay back in early 70s and uh, yeah, I, I knew how to gut a shark. By the time I was eight or nine, I could help Dad uh, clean the clean the catch on the way in. Um, I was hooking bronzies off the back of the boat, you know, before I reached double figures. So yeah, I started early. I had a passion. I think I knew by the time I was eight or nine. Uh, I remember clearly. I, I knew that I was going to be a commercial fisherman. I went to uh, to boarding school. In in, um, in Adelaide, and uh, I was the second person, apparently, to go to Ross Trevor College and go straight into the alternative class. The first person was a iconic fisherman on the on the Air Peninsula here by the name of Bernie Henderson, and I was right behind him. We went straight up to the agriculture shed and started working on tractors. Well, it it was only the uh, halfway through that year I I left boarding school and. Um, came back to Streaky Bay and 
and uh, jumped on a boat called the Helen M from Esperance that was in Streaky and we fished for tuna back across the bite at 15 and unloaded in a 33 tonne in Esperance and yeah, I was, well, it was three months before my 16th birthday. It was a different tuna industry. Things were starting to wind down a little bit in the industry at that stage, even I think. Um, there was boats still like the Cape Byron around, uh, you know, old wooden uh, tuna boats. Um, we, we were obviously polling, the, the, I think the market, the tuna markets, and it was quite tight and it was it wasn't much longer after that that the uh, farming, uh, the ranching methods started to come into play. Yeah, I, I was of uh, strong build, and um, you know, and it was about technique, about getting large fish over the side as the boat rolled, and the polling tuna was just, it still is today, one of the most uh, electrifying fishing methods that I've ever done for excitement and action, and yeah, crazy sensation polling tuna. Streaky Bay, nestled on the western coast of South Australia, boasts a dramatic coastline marked with pristine beaches and rugged cliffs. Its waters, peppered with islands and streaked by minerals and seaweed, give the bay its distinctive name. Renowned for its rich marine life, including the famous King George Whiting, and framed by arid land that blooms with wildflowers, Streaky Bay offers a diverse tapestry of natural wonders where the outback meets the sea. Streaky Bay is the, is the centre of the Air Peninsula on the west coast uh, geographically, but far out. What a what a coast! You know, to be born into something like this coastline, it's one of the most unique coastlines in the world, and everywhere is different. I've travelled a lot, but this place still fascinates me. We've got we've got six estuaries or so on the west coast from from um, and the gulfs in in the South Australia. It just it all just adds to this unique. We've got unique tides. We've We've only got uh, the Gulf of Mexico and and, um, and South Australia are the only two places in the world where you get a dodge tide or where the, where the tides have no movement on the quarters, the moon quarters each month. And it's quite fascinating, but it, it does a lot for different species. You can catch more species when the tide's slow and then the tide roars. So that's unique in itself, those big bodies of water. And we have all these estuaries along the coast in, in Venus Bay, Baird's Bay, Streaky Bay, Smoky Bay and Sejuna Murat Bay. And those estuaries have shallow water sea grasses, which are just, you know, they're only found in a few areas of the world. And we've got our own unique uh, varieties of sea grasses and all our unique uh, marine scale species that inhabit these bays. The offshore fishing is something to behold as well in our reef systems. And the, we have a couple of the only um, oceanic prawn fisheries in the in the world and um our water temperatures change quite dramatically our air temperatures change you know within 40 degrees 40 50 60 degrees air changes and quite um i don't know it's quite uh the weather's changing all the time throughout the year we really do get four seasons and so yeah to fish the coast and the different species you really got to have that experience to follow and know where to go and where to look and and uh, not spend all your time looking and uh, a lot more time catching and the industry came north to streaky bay for tuna at different times of the season and uh, when the boats came to streaky back then the, you know when a big blow would come through there'd be any anywhere up to 30 boats or 40 boats tied up side by side at the streaky jetty and as the weather subsided on a, on a classic day they'd be out baiting of a night out off the streaky jetty and you could see them off the town 20 or 30 lights out there baiting catching live bait and then it, you'd 
as soon as you had your bait, you would be racing to, you know, Noitz or or uh, Western Streaky, wherever the the spotters were finding the fish, and you'd you'd all be ra- the boats would be racing to the fish and and obviously chumming up the patch and first into the patch and getting the fish going and and uh, everyone had scrambled to the racks when you're coming to a rippler and yeah, start slapping the water or live baiting and I just remembered it as just. It was crazy to be 15 or 16 years old and being part of that. For me, it was just a a fantastic memory. A young fisherman's journey into the craft begins with learning the ocean's rhythms and the silent language of the tides. It's an apprenticeship marked by working across as many different forms of hunting for fish as possible. Each day is a lesson in learning about preparation, patience and respect for the sea, an education in tradition and the sustainable harvest of its treasures. Well... I was at footy training one night in Streaky on a cold winter's night and a, and a, and a fox shooter, Shearer, rocked up there. And he, he was a legendary fisherman in South Australia too. His name was Jim Hales. He was a cray fisherman down the southeast and he came out for a run for footy training. And, and I said, Halsey, what's going on? And he said, I'm, a, I'm cray fishing down the southeast. I said, give me a job. <laughs> and uh, he rang me back a couple of months later. He said, hey, smuck get down here, we start in eight weeks, come down and do the maintenance. I, I spent two years crayfishing in Beachport down the southeast in some of the roughest conditions I've ever fished in, small boats too, and leaving early, big days, strong tide, a lot, just hard physical work. And um, Jim was a diligent operator and taught me, I did a two-year apprenticeship down there and he taught me everything I know about motors and the boats and looking after gear and painting and you really... I did a solid apprenticeship with him and I really appreciated it because it set me up to look after my gear and my own fishing operations and that's that's where that's where the rubber hits the road in fishing. If your gear is ready to go and, it, and it's um, in good condition, you're ready to fish when you've got to fish. Unfortunately, in the second year of my, the second season down there with Jim, my father passed away fishing at Streaky and he was a hand lining King George Whiting and, and uh, he passed away out whiting fishing one day so I I, did, I couldn't stay in the southeast any longer. I, I missed my family and come home. At, uh, I was just 17 and a half, 18, and, and uh, my mum transferred the family fishing licence to me, which I, which I sold to a buyback, <laughs> ironically, last year to the reform of the marine scale fishery. But um, I still have a marine scale licence today. And, and, yeah, I entered the marine scale fishery then, um, handlining for King George Whiting and, and a gill netting shark. And I spent the next... Oh, the next 15 to 20 years gill netting shark and, and uh, hand lining and dab and gar fish and in a multi-species, multi-gear fishery and uh, different boats. So I bought and sold boats, wooden, you know, I had the last wooden boat on the west coast of South Australia, uh, commercial shark fishing and I really enjoyed having wooden boats because such a culture going on the slip and keeping your boat nice, you know, and, 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 and the the um, capabilities of a wooden boat and just just the warmth and the and the characteristics of a wooden fishing vessel is something to be to behold. For a young fisherman, education extends beyond local shores to the remote and wild fisheries of places like Alaska, where the craft is tested against nature's extremes. Venturing into these icy, untamed waters offers a profound lesson in resilience where one learns from seasoned veterans the nuances of different fisheries, different species and a different life. It's an adventure where each catch is hard won, embedding deep knowledge of sustainable practices essential for survival in the fishing industry. 
the multi gear, multi species fisheries ebb and flow, and sometimes things get pretty tight or pretty slow. And I made the most of them opportunities front foot forward, and I I went with a, a, a another iconic guy from Port Lincoln, Craig Valenti, and he was longlining on the east coast of Australia. So I did a stint with Craig longlining out of Sydney and Port Stephens for uh, tuna, and that was very interesting. And I met a in those earlier years, I, uh, in about 1999, I met a, a surfer from Puerto Rico and he came to, Austra- to Australia and came to Streaky Bay and he said, Jeff, you've got to go to Alaska. You, you'd love it and, uh, in the commercial salmon fishery there. And It wasn't until 10 years later I, I ventured to Alaska and fished in the, um, in the drift net fishery in Bristol Bay for salmon and and met all the guys on the we were now on the deadliest catch. I met those those guys service the salmon fishery throughout the summer, uh, picking up fish from the from the small gillnet boats and delivering them to the processing ships. And uh, it was just a, it was unreal up there. And I, I was back there in 2010 again for another season. I met a lot of lovely people and spent time from Vancouver Island down the Aleutian Island chain up into Bristol Bay, steaming boats back and forward and and being part of that fishery. That was great. I believe it's the largest fishery in the world in uh, volume of boats and people engaged in the fishery and they have a boat limit of uh, about 32 feet which is quite crazy because the boats have morphed into these almost round little beasts but yeah they hold a lot of fish and and the gillnet fisheries you know it's by the gun they they shoot a flare or or radio signal that you start the fishery and then they close the fishery so you have short windows of openings and and it's electric, and I just remember being on the North Line at, at Iggy Geek one day, and there was fisheries choppers and vessels and boats shooting over the top of each other, and actually I saw a couple of boats hit each other, and it was unreal, just electrifying you know, up there with, with pole and tuna back in the day. It was full on and um, quite exciting. The volumes of fish were epic. I mean, you'd hit the pillow of a night, mate. Your fingers were burning because you were, you were pulling them out of the you know eight-braid gill net and uh, burning your hands out but I think we did we did uh, 13 ton of of salmon one day and all hand picked from the gill net I, I've never you know seen that volume of fish just single handedly handled each animal <laughs> individually pretty crazy in South Australia the life of a modern marine scale fisher intertwines with the southern ocean's temperamental moods with sustainability at the forefront they employ regulated practices using nets and lines to selectively harvest species like snapper, garfish, southern calamari, and the mighty King George whiting. This challenging profession demands adaptability to regulations and markets, a strong grasp of marine biology, and a deep respect for the ocean's delicate ecosystems, ensuring their livelihood endures alongside healthy marine populations. Yeah, life now is, uh, I don't know, it just seems quite different, but the olden days are the olden days, and I guess these are the olden days too, but um, right now we seem to be in a, well, we're in a marine scale fishery in South Australia that's been under reform for five or six years, and I've been an integral part of moving towards that in the, in the management side from an industry representative side of it, and um, uh, the fishery's gone quota like many other fisheries in the world, and um uh, it's been hard for some people exiting the fishery or trying to stay in because not many have catch history and to qualify for these amounts of quota that you need to be sustainable. There's just lots of heartache in moving the management 
regime of a fishery, there's, there's there's a lot more pain than there is gain. I mean, the gain's pretty flamboyant at times with people receiving large amounts of fish for, you know, for uh, for work that they've put into the industry, I guess, and been lucky or been had good runs of fish at the right time, and it's reflected back into a financial gain. But the pain is is quite disturbing for our industry and the ageing demographic in the fishery. Um, um, I think, yeah, the, the marine scale fishery, I love it. It's a, it's a multi-species fishery, so we're still targeting uh, bronze whalers by long line. We have a small limit of gummy and school shark, which we can take by long line. We have a dabnet garfish fishery and a jig fishery for southern calamari, a long line fishery for snapper, but unfortunately we're closed until 2026 for that fishery. It'll be closed for six years at least. Uh, through stock sustainability concerns um, and the hand, the iconic King George Whiting that we handline, which is, it's got to be the most, uh, the oldest method of fishing, using a piece of string and two hooks. Well, you know, if you know how to use that piece of string and two hooks and you've got, you know, 30, 40 years experience in this industry, the money to be made is, I mean, uh, we are in the fishery for, for, to make our living, but that's not, you know, if you, love, if you have a love and a passion for this fishery, you're not in it for the money. But the money for the King George Whiting fishery is looking really good. And um, of my operation, we sort of, freight is killing us to get fish out of a remote area because of fuel costs and, uh, you know, just rising costs. So um, I've set up a little factory and uh, I'm processing my own fish uh, doing, and I'm doing something new, relatively new for the commercial sector is boneless King George Whiting fillets. Um, I mean, the factories have left the bones on for years to gain an extra 12 or 13% of weight, but I'm taking them off and selling a pristine product that the chefs don't have to touch. They can just cook it and lay it out, and it seems to be, seems like it's going to be really lucrative. And, and uh, by doing it yourself, you, you, you're cutting down that middle man that we've been building mansions for them guys for a long time, and now it's time for us to start capitalising on, you know, as we move moving forward to try and make a sustainable operation for us. On South Australia's west coast, a marine scale fisherman starts their day before sunrise, meticulously preparing gear with a keen eye on weather forecasts. Braving the capricious southern ocean requires a fearless attitude and profound respect for nature's might. Each day demands precise preparation, balancing safety with the pursuit of the day's catch amidst the region's notorious swells. A typical day in the King George Whiting fishery at the moment, which is we're coming to the end of it for this year, but it's a winter fishery, so you, you, usually cold. You're rugged up and, and uh, fishing pretty adverse conditions, you know, uh, up to 35 knots of wind fishing in a 15-foot boat, but in shallow water, so it's blowing the top off the water, but you, it's pretty uncomfortable. Uh, it doesn't do anything for your back. Um, a typical day is, you know, up at daylight, plant, uh, what do you call it, pleading the bay in streaky pulling the the uh, razor fish which are a, like a razor clam that sits in the sand and we're allowed to take a limit of them and we can use them for bait purposes only and we crush them and use them throughout the day to attract the king george whiting to our patch so we the local burley is always the best it doesn't matter where you're fishing in the world the local burley is the best burley and so fresh razor fish are on the ute and load up with ice and drive to one of the estuaries that can be up to 160 kilometres a day in the car to travel to the estuaries, um, the Venus Bay or Baird's Bay or Sejuna, depends where the runner fish is. Um, seven or eight or ten hours of hand lining throughout an incoming tide and an outgoing tide and 
you know, and, and an average to good catch is 50 or 60 kilograms of King George whiting a day, uh, up to three or 400 fish, all hand line caught with, with one line with two hooks on it. Yeah, anchoring and anchoring with three anchors to get your boat right in the tide and in the wind and uh, at the right times of day on the right little bits of reef or we're constantly moving, doing up to 20 or 30 patches a day uh, at most. Yeah, pretty pretty physical. So and and uh, it's just a nice environment to work. Fishing and big wave surfing share a symbiotic relationship with the ocean's rhythm. For those who cast nets and those who ride swirls, understanding the sea's patterns is vital. The fisherman's keen observation of currents and tides informs the surfer's search for the perfect wave. Both respect the ocean's power, nurturing a harmony with the elements and both draw from the deep well of bravery, patience and respect that life on the high seas instills. Well, I appreciate your question because um, I'm sure people know that I've got that connection, but far out. To have a big wave surf connection and, and a fishing connection on this planet is pretty hard to maintain both. You've got to be passionate about both. And so the big, my big wave connections taking me all around the world started off with just just surfing bigger and bigger waves and more exciting and more adrenaline really and and um uh 20 years ago there were some guys in hawaii started using the jet ski to tow into bigger waves which made it more accessible and unfortunately at times that you bite off more than you can chew uh, letting go of the rope on a on a swell that you can't really tell how big it is until it's going to hit the reef but yeah fortunately i'm 56 and i'm still so i'm still towing into you know, forty foot faces or fifty foot faces today, and one of my colleagues, one of the hook fishermen from down here, said the other day, he said, "How how much longer are you going to be towing that shit for, Jeff?" And I said, "Well, as long as I can still ob- obtain triple figures, like over a hundred kilo of whiting handlining a day, I'm going to keep towing waves as big as swells is what we're going to find." But it's been it's been a great lifestyle too. It's a bit like fishing; it's taken us all around the world. You know, to Tahiti, we surf Chopu with. My son's quite a famous surfer as well, so I've enjoyed surfing with my son, and that, that's been pretty cool watching him. He's one of the best big wave riders in the world. I just think, I, I don't think, I know that fishing is all about keeping your eyes open, you know, looking outside the square, uh, per, per, your perception of things, you know, and I think, and surfing's very similar. It's, it's, uh, you've got to be eyes wide open. You're just watching. So it's about preparation. It's about passion and preparation, and and uh, then then you apply your skill. But I think your skill comes with your passion and your preparation. You know, skill is something that grows and grows, and and uh, it's 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 an absolute necessity in both fields. If if uh, you want to fish, um, you you got to be passionate about it, and you got to grow with it, and and be acceptable of change. You know. South Australia's west coast is a dramatic theatre for the great white shark, an apex predator commanding respect and awe. These formidable creatures, with their steely gaze and fluid power, glide through the ocean depths near Streaky Bay, their presence a testament to the wild's raw beauty. They are a crucial part of the marine ecosystem, maintaining balance and inspiring both conservation efforts and a sense of wonder in the waters they dominate. Uh, I'll, I'll recite one story as I was a kid because it wasn't any of my doing. It was, it was sitting in awe as a eight, eight or nine-year-old kid with my father and a, a sick. We were cleaning shark at Cape Bore at Streaky in the evening after a big, you know, two or three shots gill netting throughout the day. And 
had all the fish in the old wooden boat in the well. I was gaffing them out of the well, giving them to dad, and he was he was cleaning the shark and throwing the heads over the side. And a, a 16 or 17 foot pointer, it was a huge one, turned up at the side of the boat. And I think back in the day, you know, my father and even me as a younger fellow, we, we didn't really think about what, what our connection with the environment and about sustainability and, and looking after things. And dad's pulled out the powerhead and drove a 12 gauge shell fair between the eyes of this thing. And it, just took the surface off the water as it took off and I just I was just hang, probably hanging onto the mast just going far out that's the most powerful thing I've ever seen or ever likely to see and hence my fascination with great whites and, and uh, been in the gillnet fishery on the west coast for 35 years uh, I saw a lot of pointers and had a lot of uh, interactions with them dead and alive caught in the gillnets and coming to the boat while we were cleaning fish and um, I was always a coastal waters fisherman too, so fishing around the sea line colonies. So if there was a boat that was going to see pointers, it was me, and I, I saw them around the surf breaks and, you know, um, all along the coast. I've never seen a, a pointer in the surf until last week. We had a shark attack at, at Streaky Bay, and I saw that shark minutes after the attack, and I don't know, you just... They're such a graceful creature. I've got a good respect for them. I, I hope moving forward we can we can uh, work with the great whites and not have to knock any of them off. Maybe we can possibly get some GPS trackers in them and start a database where any kid can look at the website through an app while he's sitting in the car park and see that there's a pointer there or there was a pointer there two days ago and it's moved on. As you follow, you can follow the track and hopefully this government has enough money to spend on it to look after the water users in in these southern states of Australia and uh, we can have a healthy respect for the pointers and reduce the amount of uh, interactions they're, they're, they're an animal that there's not very many of them and and i reckon you know in my opinion there's a, there might only be two or three hundred great whites in south australia right now that are over the length of you know 13 or 14 feet in that man-eater size and i think what i've come to understand about them is they're just so unique they're unique individuals some of them almost like they're almost, they're them big fish are just like a king lion, you know, like a, a big lion that's in charge of the pack. I'm not talking about his subordinates. I'm, they're such individuals and so strong characters and they move with such confidence and, and uh, prowess. And man, you just can't s- stop to think how uh, amazing they are, how, how magnificent. Many fishermen grapple with the isolation and physical demands of their trade, sometimes seeking solace in alcohol. However, there is a transformative journey that awaits beyond dependence. Embracing sobriety opens a rejuvenating chapter where the clarity replaces haze, allowing for fuller engagement with the ocean's wonders and a more profound appreciation of life's richness. The support of their communities can guide them towards healthier shores where they find strength, not in spirits, but in the spirit of the sea. Along with my fascination of big waves and, and my fishing career came came some addictions, you know, and, and uh, my addiction was alcohol and, and I've, been, I've been on a piss all my life, you know. I've been pissed for 30 years and, and I'm a functional alcoholic and I don't, I don't mind um, sharing that now. But three years ago, I woke up and, and uh, thought to myself, I, I, I can't control this thing. I'm, I'm just having a few beers every day, but I wasn't finishing off on things. I wasn't, I'd lost my self-satisfaction that you get from 
cutting the drawbar off a boat trailer and welding it back up and putting a new winch on and painting it. I, I lost that 15 years ago and, and I was happy to pay $100 an hour to one of these marine fabricators we got. And no disrespect to them guys, they got their businesses and they're building us boats and looking after our gear. But I'd lost my self-satisfaction, which was a real shame. And and uh, since stopping drinking for me, I, I knew that it wasn't something that I could partake in anymore because I had that addictive personality and I had to stop it altogether. But since then, I've yeah, I've put a 40, 40 odd orchard fruit tree orchard in the ground, and and I'm processing my own fish, and I'm just starting to get back what's rightfully mine, and that is, you know, being an ambassador for our fishery. Um, looking after my, what's happening in my own world first, in my family and, and uh, in my own immediate world. And only then, if I'm healthy, I can go out and help and contribute to society and my community. Mate, that that first breath in the morning today, just those first deep breaths and looking out and seeing the sun come up, or it just, mate, I was so happy to be alive and be awake and appreciating everything that's around me that, I'm getting out of bed now with a newfound uh, enthusiasm that I ha- haven't had since I was nine years old with my old man when that powerhead went off. Jeff Schmucker, both fisherman and big wave surfer, embodies the pure love and joy the ocean can bestow. His life, carved by the swell and the pull of the tide, reflects a profound connection to the sea. In the silent wait for a bite or the thunderous chase of a towering wave, Jeff finds a harmonious existence. His passion for the ocean's vastness, a mirror to the endless possibilities it presents to those who seek its embrace. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.